Welcome to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. In this podcast, financial planner Peter Raskin helps families and business owners understand and prepare for their wealth journey. Along the way, thoughtful and detailed planning can provide clarity and confidence as clients confront a multitude of financial decisions. Listen in as Peter shares stories and insight into people's wealth journeys. Now, let's get into today's podcast. Hello and welcome to Wealth is in the Details with Peter Raskin from Raskin Planning Group. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine, Eric. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I am really excited about today's guest and you have given me the honor of introducing. Can I do that now? Yeah, please do. Thank you. Our guest today is Patrick McCollum and and Peter, I know you brought him on because you're going to be talking about health insurance and health insurance has such a major impact on both small and large businesses across the country, but it also impacts millions of employees. Patrick McCollum is the owner of Balanced Benefits Group located in Hingham, Massachusetts. Patrick is our expert today who will discuss all things health insurance for small business. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to hear this conversation. Peter, you bring on amazing guests with, with a really fine and good focus on one subject matter. Sounds like Patrick has a ton of experience, but why specifically did you bring him on today's podcast? Well, I just, I think that the health insurance is just so, so vital in our society and, and for, for many of our, our clients and our listeners, it just affects everyone. You know, I'd say that the vast, vast majority of our clients, the people that we interact with on a daily basis are really very privileged. And in so many ways, and one of those ways is that we often have excellent health care and and we frankly we take it for granted and especially for those of us that are consistently employed by our organizations that offer health insurance and in this country access to health care if you're under age 65 is primarily through employer sponsored health insurance plans and it, it's a huge financial burden for both these small and large businesses that offer these benefits and and becoming a a burden for employees as well. So that that's why I thought it was so important to have have Patrick here and I'm I'm so so glad he's part of the conversation and you know I've known Patrick for about 30 years now. He's got such an interesting perspective on on health insurance. So so Patrick, could you could you talk about how the health insurance market affects the small business and and eventually affects the employees of those businesses. Yeah, and thank you, Peter, again, for having me on. Uh, Hearing you say you've known me for 25 or 30 years in the employee Massachusetts and New England health insurance market is in no way depressing, (laughs) to quote Ron Burgundy. (laughs) It's an amazing market. It's been a pretty transformative market over the last 30 years, that's for sure. Uh, I'll tell you a little story that's sort of, I think, summary of how my clients see me. On occasion, I'll stop in mid-year just to, to pay a client visit to make sure things are going on well with our clients. And so many times when I walk in and it's not the renewal time with an employer, they'll, they'll see me and they'll have this look of abject terror because I know in their mind they're thinking, oh no, it can't be health insurance renewal time again. I often feel pretty depressed that they look at me as if I'm a grim, grim reaper. But health insurance has been just an amazing burden for employers of almost all size and also for employees because obviously with most arrangements, the employees pay a portion of the premium. So it's it's been a burden. Rate increases are, are hitting us unabated again in, in late 2020, and it certainly looks like 2021 they're, they're going to keep coming. 
It's been one of the toughest challenges for employers over the last three decades. Why does health insurance just keep on becoming more and more expensive? It, it just doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. What's, what's going on? You're right. And it's, you know, the, the narrative oftentimes is that, well, health insurance is expensive because health care is expensive. And that is true to a degree. Obviously, in Massachusetts, we have some of the best hospitals and teaching hospitals in the country. People fly in from many, many countries to have care, certainly in Massachusetts and in New England. And that's, that is a small part of the story. Some of the medical advancements that we have seen in our lifetime are pretty incredible. We've seen hips put in, uh, knees redone, organ transplants, things that, you know, 40, 50 years ago would be unheard of. Uh, and, and we don't have to go too far to know of someone in our life who's had an MRI or a CT scan. Again, things that 40, 50 years ago just weren't happening. That is certainly part of the story. That comes at a cost, some of this incredible advancements in medical care. But a bigger part of the story is, at least over the 30 years that I've been in this industry, is the incredible increase in cost for prescription medication. Obviously, utilization of prescription medication is up as well. When I started this 30 years ago, prescription medication represented about 10 to 15% of, of the cost of what we're paying for our health insurance. Now it's almost 50%. So every dollar you're paying in health insurance premium, almost half of that is going to cover prescription cost. Now, obviously, again, prescription utilization is up dramatically. Some illnesses have increased dramatically that require prescriptions, adult onset diabetes. But this rapid growth in cost of prescription medication is a big part of the story. Many people think that insurance companies and hospitals are just reaping the financial dividend at our expense. But there's been legislation put in, certainly with health insurance carriers, minimum loss ratios, that they are not profiting in the way that many people think. And hospitals are also not profiting in the way many people think. One of the components that seems fairly unchecked has been the prescription medication in, in certainly the pharmaceutical industry as a whole. And I think that's something that needs really to be addressed federally. One other component of why health insurance costs continue to rise is legislation. The Affordable Care Act did many things, removed pre-existing conditions from many health insurance plans in many different states across the union, also added benefits such as pediatric dental benefits, which health insurance carriers in the past had never provided. Those are wonderful things, but they come at a cost, no doubt, and we are paying that cost. So it's sort of a, a compilation of a lot of different factors there. But unfortunately, again, the increases coming or keep coming fast and furious. And I, and I just don't see that changing anytime soon until they really start addressing certainly the pharmaceutical in, in, uh, issue. That's certainly component number one. Obviously, general health in America is certainly a key factor there as well. So that increases utilization because obviously utilization increases in healthcare, increases the cost for health insurance. It's a direct corollary. Sure, more, more people are using it. The, the costs are higher. And you've just got such uh, technological advances that, that really do need to be paid for, I would imagine. Absolutely. What, what are your thoughts about 2021? What kind of rate increases do you think we'll see? We haven't seen our 2021 pricing yet. Healthcare pricing tends to increase most dramatically on the quarter. That's when the, the division of insurance has to approve those increases. So we haven't seen the, the first quarter of 2021 yet. But if the fourth quarter pricing of 2020 is any predictor, not good. Most carriers have gone up by 3 to 4% just starting in the fourth quarter. So that doesn't bode well for 2021. 
That's double inflation. Indeed. Uh, the, the word out has been that, that medical inflation is about 8% annually. I, I, I'm not seeing that in the fourth quarter, that's for sure. Yeah, wow. Do small businesses need to offer health insurance to employees? That's a little bit of a misunderstanding out there that most employers still think they're under the mass healthcare reform guidelines as far as having to offer health insurance. Back when mass healthcare reform was first rolled out, employers with 11 employees or more had to provide health insurance or take a pretty steep penalty. Those have gone away. Once the, the Federal Affordable Care Act was passed, most state penalties disappeared. So most small employers do not have to offer health insurance to their employees. And I've certainly had that conversation with a lot of employers. I think it's important for them to know that that's, they're not bound by that penalty anymore. So employers have certainly that's, have considered that option. While as attractive as that might be to many employers, sort of getting out of the health insurance game as far as their employees, there are some downsides to it, and some financial, some based on taxes, and some just conceptual. Having a health insurance plan for your employees increases the degree of loyalty and stickiness amongst your employees. When an employee has their own health insurance, their probability of coming and going between your company and another company certainly increases. When they get it through their employer, it's being deducted. A portion of the premium that they contribute towards gets deducted on a pre-tax basis, which is advantageous to employees when they're paying 40 or 50% of the premium. It gets to come out pre-tax. Buy it on their own, they don't have that advantage. Those are important. For an employer that is considering dropping the health insurance plan and maybe increasing their pay for their employees by $1 or $2 an hour, that's roughly what the math comes out to, that's wonderful. But the downside is, A, the employees now have to pay for, you know, find health insurance on their own and pay for it with after-tax dollars. And B, an employer just lost a pretty nice tax deduction every year and has gained a new taxable event. Payroll tax is real. And so when you're increasing your payroll, you're increasing your taxes. And you're, again, also losing the ability to deduct a pretty important line item there. The final factor that an employer has to consider when thinking dropping health insurance for their employees and letting them fend for themselves, unfortunately, a lot of employees, when they're making the decision on health insurance, if they're making a decision on their own, are looking at one factor and one factor alone, and that's cost. And so there are some very low-cost plans out there with extremely high deductibles, high coinsurance, high co-pays, and really small networks of doctors and hospitals they can utilize. When an employee just looks at cost, they will find out down the road when they have a claim of any degree what the real cost of that plan is. Most brokers, when they're going to market, are obviously looking at cost, looking at coverage, and looking at the network of doctors and hospitals. So when an employee goes on their own, they're losing the support of both their employer vetting the plan and a professional broker vetting the plan. So that's a little bit more of a conceptual loss than some of the other factors, but those are just some of the things an employee and an employer have to think about when you're contemplating jettisoning the health insurance plan. I could see that, especially in, in a tight labor market like we've been in for a long, long time. It's important to just consider these employee benefits as, as part of the, the reason why employees stay at a company. You know, it's that stickiness. A lot of employers lose sight of the fact, you know, they look at their health insurance plan and, they, and, you know, they're overwhelmed sometimes by the cost. But there's other benefits that 
create a degree of stickiness with employees as well. And they really come at a much diminished cost point for an employer. Employer-sponsored life insurance plans and employer-sponsored long-term disability plans. These are benefits that employees don't really know how to buy in their own, or if they do buy them on their own, they're extremely expensive. But employers can roll out those benefits, and they're really relatively affordable for an employer to offer to their employees. And that statistically has proven to be one of the more sticky, you know, increases in stickiness between an employee and an employer. Having those kind of benefits that an employee doesn't quite understand how to buy on their own. They know they're valuable. They don't quite know how to buy them on their own. So an employer offers those in tandem with a health insurance plan. It really has shown an increased employee loyalty and employee longevity with a particular employer. That's interesting. So... Patrick, what, what's a small business to do? You know, how can they they get a handle on these increasing costs? Are are there associations that that are available to them? Well, first and foremost, association plans have been fought very aggressively by the insurance companies. So we have found that every time an association plan tries to get introduced in the Commonwealth, the insurance companies line up to fight it, and that's been something they've been very successful at doing. There's not many association plans available in the state right now, and the few that are there the discount to the health insurance plan is almost negligible. So association plans are really not a viable option, mostly because the health insurance plans have done the best they can to kill them. So the best alternative for an employer is, first of all, make sure you're working with a broker that is dedicated to this market. Many insurance agents, actually very few insurance agents are focused on health insurance. Many of them are focused on property casualty lines, and maybe they'll have someone in the office that deals with health insurance, but it's not their primary focus. The way the health insurance market is is changing, certainly by the month, you have to make sure you're dealing with a health insurance broker who's f- committed and focused primarily on the employee-employer health insurance market. That's number one, because you have to be confident that your broker is going to every available health insurance carrier when they go to market. There are more health insurance carriers out there than most employers are aware of. Most employers think, well, there's Blue Cross, there's Harvard, and there's Tufts. There are many more carriers than that, and you have to have a complete picture of what's available to you. That's first and foremost. Number two, an employer has to look, I like our clients to look at health insurance a little differently, uh, certainly as far as what the employer can pay. There are different formulas an employer can use uh, in determining what's the best plan for his employees or her employees. Many times we like to do dual option offerings. Every health insurance carrier will allow you to present two and sometimes three different health insurance plans to your employees. Some employers look at that and say, oh, that, that sounds complicated. How do, we, how do we roll that out? Well, obviously, we help you roll that out with your employees through direct communication. Uh, but offering dual option plans oftentimes can be a way for you to control your cost and also make your employees feel a little bit more empowered in the process as far as determining what plan they're getting. We also work really closely with employers when they're setting their contribution levels as to what's the best message to their employees. That's something you have to really be aware of. Uh, there are also HSA-based plans that are available and hra HRA-based health insurance plans that are out there. So again, there's, there's a complexity to health insurance that is only understood by someone that's dealing with it day in and day out. I often look at it as we, as the employer and I have a shared enemy, which is the health insurance carrier. We are trying to find every angle we can in that fight that supports the employer. So uh, again, whether it's utilizing a healthcare reimbursement account, a health savings account, uh, a dual option offering, there are ways to skin this cat 
that we have utilized for all of our clients. And so it's just so important to be creative in, in your thinking. And I think, frankly, to to work with a professional like you, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I, if I'm hiring a, uh, a hip surgeon, I want to hire someone that's done a thousand hips and focuses on those every single Every single time they walk into the uh, into surgery, I want them to be the expert, and and that's I think what you are. It's just so vital to have someone who's done it before, has seen lots of circumstances, understands the insurance marketplace, and and can help you design a plan that's appropriate for for you. And to that point, Peter, there are some subtle ways to to, to do that. If an employer's renewal is October first, or often let's use a, a more common renewal, January first. The start of every business quarter is when health insurance carriers increase their prices by the highest percentage. We have many, many employer groups that renew on December 25th. In the first year they move to that new carrier, it's saving 3 or 4%. So just tweaking your start date with a new carrier can save you 3 or 4% for the entire year. So these are subtleties in pricing that, that employers need to be aware of. And again, it's... We, we try to be creative with our clients' dollars because every dollar in their pocket is a dollar outside of the insurance company's pocket, and that's sort of our, that's sort of our approach to this. You mentioned HRAs, HSAs. There's also FSAs. Could you briefly describe that kind of alphabet soup of, of uh, strategies? Well, as you probably can tell so far by this, this conversation, I'm not that good at being brief on anything. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> So each one of them is funded a little differently. An FSA, a flexible spending account plan, is typically funded with employee dollars, pre-tax dollars. An HSA is often funded by primarily employee dollars, but oftentimes employer dollars as well. And an HRA is funded 100% by employer dollars. So that's, that's a critical component. Some of them are use it or lose it, and some are not. In FSA, the money that you contribute into that over the course of the year, you have to use it. It doesn't keep rolling from year to year. An HRA typically is a use it or lose it as well, where if I don't utilize the money that's been put towards that, it doesn't roll from to the next year. An HSA is different. Money put into an HSA rolls from year to year. And you know, as you can imagine, if it rolls from year to year, that the dollar figure can really add up over twenty or thirty years if you're if you're committed to such a plan. So that's those are some of the major components to it. The HSA is very unique in that it can't be paired with just every health insurance plan in the market. It has to be paired specifically with an HSA certified health plan. So an FSA can be paired with any health plan. An HRA can be paired with any health plan. An HSA has to go with a specific health insurance plan. There's advantages to each one of these offerings, with the HSA being a little bit more evolved of the three. But we have clients that utilize all three different approaches to health insurance. There's the FSA is the flexible spending account. The HSA is the uh, health savings account. And the HRA is the health reimbursement account. Correct. And again, the HRA is fully is only funded by employer dollars. And these are all set to offset increased coinsurance or co-pays or deductibles. So they're not necessarily a solution to the the health insurance premium, 
but they are a way for an employer and an employee to pay with tax advantage dollars for for health insurance care. By going with an HRA and an HSA specifically, most employers that go that path are increasing their deductible. They're increasing the employee deductible and then introducing an HRA and an HSA as a way of funding that deductible. So as you can imagine, when you increase your deductible, the premium drops. So when we're having an HRA or an HSA conversation, it is in tandem with a health, typically in tandem with a change in the health insurance plan in a way to try to reduce the health insurance premium. Again, many employers look at it as almost a way that the employer or sometimes the employee is sort of self-funding a portion of that deductible in an effort to try to reduce their premium. Because one of the things we know in health insurance is we know the premium every month. So if we can reduce that every month by going to a higher deductible plan, we're guaranteed that savings. The utilization, which is your deductible typically, that would be funded by an HSA or an HRA, those are unknown. There's a little bit of Las Vegas going on in this, um, but you can mitigate that. And these options definitely can make sense for the right employer. Another plan you've talked to me about is uh, a partially self-funded insurance plan. Could you talk a little little bit about that and then also what kind of businesses might want to consider using that strategy? Certainly. It's it's an option that's been available to much larger employers over the last 30 years. But over the last 10 to 15 years, specific insurance companies have targeted small employers as far as target areas for partially self-funded. Essentially, what you're doing when you're going partially self-funded is as the employer, you're picking up essentially a deductible on each one of your people. A lot of employers look at that and say, oh, I don't have time to try to mitigate claims for my employees. Well, the insurance carriers that have gotten involved in the partially self-funded market for smaller employers have made this administratively very easy for employers to deal with. The long and the short of it is, if you're considering partially self-funded and you're an employer with five employees or more, first of all, you, you have to have a pretty good idea your group is healthy. If you know you've got some people or some spouses or some children that have some serious medical issues, partially self-funded is not an option for you because initially the all the health insurance carriers that are involved in this market individually underwrite each employee at the start and they will not finalize their new business pricing until they've had an ability to do that. So once your employees have typically called into a phone line and answered medical questions on themselves and their families, then the partially self-funded carrier will finalize their pricing. And their pricing uh, that they're charging every month is the worst case scenario. So as an example, let's say you have Blue Cross Blue Shield today and you've got a $2,000 deductible plan. Your single rate is $500 per month, uh, of which the employees pay a portion and the employer pays a portion. When you're looking at partially self-funded, once a partially self-funded carrier has vetted all your enrolled employees, they're going to come up with a number. Let's say their rate is $475 per month. Now this becomes a bit of a no-brainer because their pricing is guaranteed to be less by $25 a person per month, $300 a year. But the other nice feature is at the end of the 12-month period of time, the partially self-funded carrier is going to look at the claims utilization in your group. If it was better than expected, the employer is going to get a rebate. And we've had clients that have had sixty and $70,000 rebates. So it can work. There is some upfront vetting that some employers just aren't willing to have their employees go through because about half of the groups that start that process of having employees go through the individual underwriting portion 
Only half of them end up going self-funded because what typically happens is an employer doesn't know everything about all their employees or their dependents, and maybe a dependent spouse takes an extremely expensive prescription or something like that, like that. The partially self-funded health insurance carriage rates are going to come back really not very competitive. So then it's not an approach we want to take. I think it makes sense if you if an employer knows they have a pretty healthy thinks they have a pretty healthy workforce to go through the process because it I have seen it work for employers with as few as seven employees and we have some larger groups in the forty to forty five to fifty five range who've historically collected very large rebates every year, which they've put towards offsetting future premiums. So it's not for everybody, uh, but it I, we have seen it work for employers. Can you uh, go back from, you can go from partially self-funded to fully insured? That's that's a great question, Peter, because that's, that's critical. Because we have, so let's say you're partially self-funded and the renewal comes through next year with a partially self-funded carrier. You've had a bad year, claims-wise. Obviously, you've been paying the highest premium you're going to pay, so there's no clawback from the insurance company but they're going to probably give you a really big renewal increase. And we've been through this. Well, you can easily, you can go back to any one of the traditionally funded health insurance carriers at renewal. And that's really one of the only ways this works because you can walk away from it with without any any financial pain. It takes a professional like you to, to really advise and counsel the business owners so that they know what they're getting into. And most brokers are, are terrified to even bring it up, frankly. I bring up, you know, conversationally with my clients at Renewal. I'll start talking about it and then get a feel for, you know, how adventurous they are willing to be with this. If they're telling me the right things and it sounds like they're willing to, you know, take a peek at this, then we'll, we'll go down that path. Again, it's certainly not for everybody, but it can be an option that I, my feel has to be discussed. A lot of employers will, will say to me, Peter, they'll say, ah, oh, there's no difference between carriers. These these folks are all in cahoots. They're all working together. You know, the Blue Crosses, the Harvards, and the Tufts of the world, the United Healthcare's. And to a degree, you know, I, I feel their pain in that regard. But the reality is, of the hundreds and hundreds of clients we have, we're moving employers every month between carriers. So when people say they're all the same, they're not. And that's the only reason why we're moving carriers. We don't. We don't advocate an employer changing carriers for a 2% savings. There has to be substantive enough savings for an employer to justify making the change. Employers are changing insurance carriers every month. And again, it's not just between Harvard and Tufts and Blue Cross. There are other players in the market that we, we are essential for employers to consider. So this is there are options for employers out there. I think an important point is how does an employer communicate these complicated, I think they're fairly complicated strategies and systems and just even communicating rate increases. How do do they do that on a regular basis? It's something that I think a lot of employers take that burden on themselves in regards to communicating those increases and plan changes to their employees. I don't advocate that. Too often, after years and years of employers telling the employees that the plan is getting more expensive and the co-pays are going up and they're not introducing multiple plans for their employees to consider, there sometimes can be a little bit of a bitterness between employee and employer, where the employees don't always fully believe that the plan is going up. They just see it as an excuse for the employer to take more out of their pay. So to counteract that, I think it's really important, certainly when you're making a carrier change or maybe introducing a new benefit, to let your broker present that to your employees. 
First of all, it's a different voice coming to the employees, and it's sort of a neutral voice that employees uh, give some credibility to what the employer has been saying over the years as far as what this, what's happening in the market. You know, I don't try to bore employees too much with you know the state of health insurance, but it's important for them to know why the rates are going up. It's also important for them to know that their employer is contributing a very large portion of the health insurance premium and that their employer doesn't have to offer health insurance. So before we dive into the, the minutia of the health insurance plan, we try to talk a little bit about the State of the Union. And I think that, that, that can give an employer some credibility and also can take them off the hook from trying to explain this to employees. So that's an important thing that a lot of employers, um, brokers don't push. I, I push it. I think it's important. I think it's important for an employee to know some of the really big traps with their health insurance plan. A lot of health insurance carriers are increasing the emergency room copay and deductible dramatically. It's considered the second most expensive room in the hospital. So I, I tell employees when I'm doing their meeting, maybe hmm. because I'm a dad and uh, I feel sort of responsible, is that, okay, folks, if you go to, if you go to an urgent care center, it's going to cost you $45. And you're probably going to be in and out of there a lot quicker than an emergency room, which is going to cost you thousands of dollars and probably absorb six to seven quality hours of your life on a given Friday night. And I tell people, don't start looking for the urgent care when you're bleeding heavily. Find the urgent care while you're driving around on a given day. I'd like to tell people in, in my town, they put an <laughs> urgent care in an old pizza hut. But, you know, <laughs> it still smells like a pizza hut, which is a little soothing. But it's important for people to just start thinking about it a little bit, be engaged in the health insurance process. And those meetings can be invaluable, employees just hearing that, knowing that you can ask for a generic. You don't always have to take a brand name. And the copay differential for you per month is just going to be significant. So you gain a lot with those meetings. Plural gains some credibility, takes he or she off the hook a little bit with their employees. Having employees is a partnership. The employer and the employee have a common goal, which is to which is to to do business, whatever kind of business that is. They need to be engaged, and, and we need to give them credit, the employee credit, for understanding what these issues are. And I think it's just vital that 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 third party, you, the professional, come in and present to the employees. Another question that that I've heard is how are brokers compensated? You know, is this going to cost me more money? <laughs> yeah, in gold, typically, Peter. It's weird. We've gotten large amounts of bullion every year uh, from the insurance companies. It's really one of the factors I didn't want to share as to why health insurance rates are so up uh, is the incredible level of commission that a broker collects. No, it's a good question. And oftentimes I, I tell there's two goofy factors involved. First of all, an employer doesn't pay for their broker. The broker's fee is, is baked into the pricing. Uh, and, as, and since the early 90s, you can't unbake the broker's fee from the pricing. So that's, that's important. So when I tell them brokers that they're not paying me, but that I represent them, even though I'm paid by the insurance company, you know, they sometimes they look at me sort of funny. But I also try to explain them that there's about 4.2 million insurance agents out there. And the second I start thinking about my commissions, the second I lose them as a client, they better understand. But one of the things, one of the major, I think, helpful changes the insurance company made probably 15 years ago. Now, they didn't do this because they're trying to be helpful. Uh, they did this because they want to save money. But about 15 or so years ago, insurance brokers got paid a percentage of the overall health insurance premium. So when you got a 25% increase from Blue Cross Blue Shield, your broker was getting a 25% increase in pay. 
How hard are they going to push to get that renewal increase down or find another carrier that's going to pay them less? Uh, it was a little bit of a counterintuitive commission scale. They've changed that. 15 or so years ago, that an employer gets paid essentially a set fee for each employee on the plan. And I think that's a much uh, fairer way to do it because we're always fighting every year and sometimes halfway through the year to get our employer's premiums down. Some brokers, when they're when the premiums are really high and the employer might have a plan that's really just too rich, they're getting paid more and they might not do their job. By making it level that, that we aren't sharing in that cost increase at renewal, I think that's certainly a lot more fair and it makes my life a lot easier when I tell employers that, hey, that I'm not benefiting in the slightest with their renewal increase. It's important for, for employers to know that because we try to be as transparent as we can with our clients. I feel like they need to know how we're getting paid, how much we get paid. I think, again, as you had mentioned earlier, it's really a partnership here. I think our clients, who most of our clients we've had for over a decade, would concur that, that they know we're on their side, that we're trying to find every loophole and every angle to try to control something that's really a major burden for almost every employer in the Commonwealth. And thus the employees, uh, because if, if it's a cost to the employer, then that eventually comes down to, to the employee and their compensation and, uh, and to the consumer. In the past, most employers will pay a straight 50% of the premium. That's been the most common formula for employers. They pay 50% of an employee's enrolls a single or 50% of their enrolls a family. Uh, I'm against that, frankly, and I'll, I'll try to explain why. Obviously, if you're offering two plans, then you know we, we have to find a different strategy to see how much the employer is going to pay because you know probably shouldn't pay 50% of each plan. You, you want to be a little more equitable. But if, you're if I'm an employer and I'm interviewing two people, one employee would be enrolling in my plan as an individual, and the other one would be enrolling as, as a family. Now, I'm taking this from an employer's perspective. So if the employer says, I'm going to pay 50% of, of the health insurance, doesn't matter if, if uh, Patrick's taking single or Peter's taking family, and I'm trying to abject, objectively look at both of these employees. Well, if Peter's taking family, I'm going to essentially pay Peter about eight grand more a year than I'm going to pay Patrick, who's taking single. Employers aren't thinking like that. But when you're paying 50% of either tier, you're paying one employee a heck of a lot more than another over the course of the next 12 months. We've seen a lot of employers do it, essentially a defined contribution on their health insurance plan. They'll tell uh, a potential new hire, we pay $500 towards your health insurance plan. Doesn't matter if that employee is taking single, doesn't matter if that employee is taking family. We're paying $500. Uh, that way, when I'm interviewing people, it's a level playing field. I know, okay, this person's going to cost me $6,000 on the health insurance plan. And in some jobs that are blue-gray, that can represent a pretty high percentage of their income. I feel like that's a little more equitable when you're looking at employees. It also helps an employer because that employee, so let's say I'm a husband and wife, and I know my employer is only going to pay, this, this new employer is going to pay $6,000 a year. Well, I might just take single, and my wife might just, it might just make it, higher motivation for my wife to take coverage through her employer. And that's saving the employer money. You don't want to make, the way I look at health insurance, and uh, again, I can't answer I can't answer a question quickly, Peter. So I, I'm a horrible, horrible golfer, which is really uh, a sin as an insurance person to be bad at golf. But I, I've made a corollary between an employer's health insurance plan and my golf game. When I have been forced to play in insurance tournaments, all I dream of at the end of the day, when some guys are sitting at, at a table talking about how I played, is to say that they really have no idea how I played. 
because in the past, they are keenly aware of how I played because I probably almost killed them at some point in time because I'm just so bad. With an employer, when employees are describing an employer's health plan, I'd sort of like them to be thinking the same way. If, if I'm asking one of my buddies how his company's health plan is, the good thing from the buddy to say would be like, I don't know, it's not bad, it's not great, it's, it is what it is. If it's bad, they're going to say it's really bad and the employer is paying money for, just, for employees to hate the plan. If it's really good, the employer is paying too much. So I sort of like my client's health insurance <laughs> plans to blend, sort of like I'd like my golf game to blend in with the general public. That's a little bit of how I approach health insurance for my clients. As far as the employees are concerned, it shouldn't be, it should be fantastic or terrible. <laughs> it, should just, it should just be a, a benefit. There's a downside to both of them as far as employers are concerned. <laughs> well, Patrick, you know, this has been such a great conversation and, and I've learned a lot. Every time I talk to you about this, I, I learned something and, and I hope our listeners have, have been enlightened as well. If any of them want to reach you directly, how do they do that? Probably email is the, I would guess, the best medium for that. And unfortunately, you know, when we started our company you know, a long, long time ago, our email, we didn't understand the benefit of a short and brief email address. But I'll give you, they can certainly reach out to me directly. My email address is patrick at balancedbenefitsgroup.com. Balanced with a D, benefits with an S, group.com. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. And uh, if any of our listeners have questions, please give Patrick a call. He's a great, great resource. And I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind answering some questions. And uh, thank you very much for, for listening today. Thank you for the opportunity, Peter. Patrick and Peter, this was absolutely fantastic. Again, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. I think anybody, any small business owner out there has a ton of questions now. So I'm hoping that they'll reach out to either one of you to get those answers. Peter, again, thank you so much for bringing Patrick on today. Thank you, Eric. You bet. And the last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast with Peter Raskin. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Peter comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Raskin Planning Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Peter Raskin is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Securities offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker, dealer, member SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Sagemark Consulting, a division of Lincoln Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other fine companies. Raskin Planning Group is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.